to the new episode of Defence Talk, Securing a Key Advantage, a podcast brought to you by the Council on Geostrategy in partnership with Trade Association ADS Group and sponsored by industry powerhouse BAE Systems. Every two weeks, our podcast discusses key questions that shape defence, technological and national security agendas in the UK and explores the main themes in British defence in the context of intensifying geopolitical competition. Earlier this summer, Andrew Griffith, the City Minister, and James Cartledge, the Defence Procurement Minister, argued that institutions should not be shunning or divesting from defence and security companies at a time of war in Europe. They claimed that the ESG investment groupthink, deliberately or unintendedly, has resulted in divestment or risks resulting in divestment from companies involved in defence and security on ESG grounds. This November, Defence Secretary Grant Chaps told industry leaders that UK defence firms would be championed as positive ambassadors for the UK, particularly in the face of these divestment concerns. So what is the link, the concerns and the trends when it comes to ESG, investment and the defence sector? I'm Victoria Starek Somalin, co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined for this episode by Kevin Craven, chief executive of ADS Group, and Camilla Hughes, former ESG lead at Rothschild & Co Global Advisory, to discuss ESG and defense industry. Welcome both. So let's start with trying to determine what ESG means. The UK's Parliament ESG APPG report, published earlier this spring, states that environmental, social and governance refers to non-financial criteria used by different stakeholders to judge a given asset's profile, such as risk, impact or onward trajectory, and that ESG frameworks facilitate flows of information that assist with informed decision-making, whether from an investment or an operational perspective. Kevin. You became CEO of ADS in April 2021, having served as a member of the ADS board for three years, including as ADS Vice President for Defence. Previously, you were also Chief Executive of Circle UK Europe, overseeing six businesses, including defence, transport and healthcare. Could you please provide your perspective? What is ESG? So ESG is essentially a force for good in our society. Uh, understanding how uh, corporate entities and capital funds interact with the world that we live in and do things that are good for our planet, for our population and for the way that we operate. So ESG is important. Uh, one of the things that we do need to think about is how it affects uh, companies that operate in specialist areas like defence. Defence is one of those things that is critical for uh, our citizens, uh, access to free speech, for the national security and for the way that we as a country react to critical threats uh, facing all of us today. And interestingly, I think that um, the ESG landscape has changed, but we'll talk about mm. that in a while. Camilla, you worked as an investment banker for companies such as Credit Suisse, Merrill Lynch and UBS. In July 2021, you were made the chair of the ESG committee at Glenworth Properties PLC, and you also have been the head of ESG advisory and global advisory at Rothschild & Co. Could you please provide your perspective? What is ESG? So in addition uh, to, uh, to, to Kevin and just firstly, very good to be here today and discuss this, I think, ever-evolving topic. Um, I would say that ESG is uh, very much part of the kind of force that is around us that is promoting better disclosure, transparency and regulation. 
which feeds into the responsible investment community very strongly. Um, in a way, I think you need to sometimes look at the G and the S and the E and some mm. in a way separately. So, and, and, and to sort of, um, I think, um, sort of uh, neutralize this a bit, that the G part is something not new to us. You know, compliance regulation is something we've been very familiar with, especially in the listed community for, for, for a long time. And the compliance and the regulation around uh, effectively a business, the way it's run business ethics is something where a company shouldn't be unfamiliar with that. And there's just some sort of an enhancement around it. And obviously the new piece is the um, compliance uh, uh, of ESG around sort of the environmental piece and sort of carbon and carbon data. I think separately, the S is very much about sort of, you know, protecting human capital and the productivity. And I'm mm. sure we'll come on to some of that. And the E part has a sort of 10 year time box around it. So that's clearly where a lot of the focus is because there's significant urgency around sort of global warming. So all of that, I would say, to summarize, is the sort of push factor for businesses to think about what they're doing, to be able to then talk about it, disclose it. And, and hence, I think, the enhanced regulation um, and reporting piece. Uh, secondly to that, though, is the sort of value creation. So it's the pull factor of sustainability. So this mm. is about, uh, and again, nothing new, but the, the long-term sustainable viability of any business and then more broadly thinking about its impact on the broader, on the, on the wider sort of society in which that business sits. Um, so there's a lot going on and it's also unstoppable. So with many countries across the world, um, you know, already making net zero targets um, and certainly with about 80% of, of FTSE firms now putting out both targets and, 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 and promises. Um, it's very much an existential drive, I think, to decarbonize um, it is reshaping, you know, the global economy, um, but it's also a new era of opportunity. And I think, you know, we need to think about this uh, sort of the dynamics of this in a sort of positive way, whilst navigating some of the very evidential challenging aspects of, of what now businesses sort of have to front. So speaking of opportunities, um, how significant is ESG role in investment today? And how does it impact investment opportunities? So. In a way, for financial institutions, they've been hit on sort of two levels because there's regulation around them as a financial institution, as a responsible investor, the SFDR. There is also regulation for reporting, in particular for any European-based company uh, in the CSDR, which is basically them as a company. Mm. So a lot more regulation and disclosure for them to do. And in particular, all funds are having to classify themselves under the umbrellas of articles sort of uh, sort of eight and nine predominantly. So the wider area of that is sort of article eight. Um, a more select sort of impact fund would be classified as article nine. But by doing that, they're having to more, I think, limit themselves to actually how they clearly think about their portfolio investments and also the criteria of how those funds are marketed. Um, and that in itself kind of leads to some issues about um, the language that's used, the definitions that's used, the companies that fall within those definitions and therefore are investable as per their criteria in a particular fund. Um, and in addition to that, I think the risk factors that come with that and the interpretation of the risk factors um, that those companies basically present. And I think that's something that we'll come on to in this, in this, in this particular discussion for very 
you know, I think highly specialized industries where some of it uh, that goes behind the scenes is sort of less identifiable, less well understood. Kevin, I would like now to turn to you and I would like to talk more about the current trends in defense um, investment and how the growth of ESG-driven investing has affected the sector in recent years. So I have some stats here with me, and I would like to quote a few facts. Barclays announced in 2021 that it would divest its entire 12 billion defense portfolio. The bank said that the decision was made in light of our commitment to responsible investing and our belief that the defense sector is increasingly inconsistent with our ESG goals. Then another example is NatWest. NatWest announced in 2022 that it would sell its $6 billion defense portfolio. The bank said that the decision was made after careful consideration of our ESG commitments and the risks associated with the defense sector. Finally, one more. Aviva announced in 2022 that it would divest its $1 billion defense portfolio. The insurance company said that the decision was made as part of our commitment to responsible investing. So what is going on here? It seems that um, investors and banks have some substantial concerns um, over the defense sector and its ESG credentials, no? I, I think that is clear that they do have. And I mean, if we broaden those stats out, I mean, I think over 44% of global investment funds have some form of ESG wrapper around them. And many of those would uh, exclude defense stocks uh, on the grounds of those ESG wrappers. That's a very substantial number. It is, and probably, importantly, that that number has grown substantially, obviously, and over sort of the years from 2016 on, I think the rate of growth was roughly 17% per year. Mm. Prior to Ukraine, uh, that was the case. Since Ukraine, Ukraine, that rate of growth has dropped as people have realized that actually that trend, if unchecked, could have unintended consequences mm -hmm. for uh, our defense companies and the way they operate. So obviously limits to, uh, the ac to their access to capital funds could cause difficulties downstream. Um, and so both for our large uh, defense companies and for smaller companies, SMEs for instance, these investment trends have some unintended consequences that could be quite serious. So and what are those consequences? So, and they're more noticeable at the SME end of the, the market, to be mm. clear. Um, uh, but clearly, you know, if you've got um, uh, half, over half of the investment capital in the globe unavailable to defence sectors, it is a limitation of the capital that they're accessible to. Though, I don't want to draw the conclusion that that's why people won't invest in defence stocks because that would be wrong. There are many other complex factors, including the investment fundamentals of how those companies are run, how they invest, how their uh, revenues and profitabilities perform. But um, it is an unhealthy trend that limits the ability of the sector to innovate and grow. Downstream of that, um, suppliers are struggling with uh, access to retail finance products, even in some cases, anecdotally, to where personal uh, bank accounts are being refused on the grounds that they're involved in the defence sector, landlords refusing to rent premises to uh, uh, companies in the sector, and so on and so forth. So there are some uh, a number of consequences of this much broader trends 
that are worth thinking about. And um, because it's a nuanced, complex issue, combating it is also not as easy mm -hmm. as it could be. But something that we're working very hard, collaborating with the investment community, working with the government, both in terms of raising awareness of the issue and thinking about ways that we could help. Camilla, in your view, what are the main reasons? Why are we seeing these trends? So I think, um, in a way, we've landed the sector by virtue of all these goings-on in a sort of value trap. Because whilst there may be funds and uh, institutions who feel sort of, you know, less passionate or less regulated around ESG, if there isn't a market, an buoyant market, or a demand for, for, for certainly sort of listed stocks, then you don't actually necessarily see um, a sort of flight of capital to those ideas. And so that can be a sort of an additional sort of negative corollary of the effects of funds at the sort of disclosure end of saying we're going to be self-classifying ourselves as, say, Article 8, but even within that, deciding actually what is should be classified as investable in that portfolio. But by virtue of... I think assessing the risks around the sector and deciding that maybe whether it be through, you know, misplaced understanding of some of the social aspects of the sector um, or some of the effective lack of availability of data that now they require in order to basically plug the you know data sheets to be able to make those investments. Mm -hmm. They feel that 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 it's just it's it's an avoidable investment because actually they're not going to miss out on performance. They're not going to miss out on returns because if there isn't a kind of a flood of capital coming from other areas, they're not going to kind of be chasing, ch not going to need to chase after that. So I think that has some sort of our very unintended consequences of actually trying to very substantially, um, in a way, control or influence the, the the flow of sustainable capital to to these activities. Um, but you know that all goes hand in hand with how in the whole value chain as kevin was saying that there are very you know other more direct uh, influences of whether it be lenders or um a corporate uh, real estate um you know that actually impacts the entire sort of um value chain from sort of small to large um, it is difficult and obviously all of that comes at a sort of significant detriment the fact that these businesses are sort of upholding safety and security um, and a lot of the labor market too have you noticed any changes since the reinvasion of Ukraine back in 2022 in February or, for example, earlier this autumn um, in October, Hamas attacked Israel? Have there been any changes in these trends because of these events? I don't know about you, Kevin. I haven't seen any later, latest sort of updated data in the last few weeks since the since the Hamas attack. But um, certainly, I think unexpectedly, we saw the data actually sort of conversely behave, which was to actually, um, uh, uh, you know, in between 21 and 23, we've seen a doubling of the ex, uh, of the exclusions with the defence sector within portfolios. Um, and that's a statistic that sort of is uh, qualified in a number of broker reports. Um, so, I mean, clearly that has... I think led to funds looking at it, thinking of the point of interest must be bigger activity, you know, more investment, more spend, more interesting returns, etc. But actually beyond that, I think, again, that signifies that that there's a there's an acute awareness around the kind of trade off between mm. those returns and investments and the risks associated with it. So from I'm sure again we'll come on to this but some of the things that can be done about it have actually purely got to actually I think be confidence building around the necessity of the industry and also the education 
um, of what basically is deemed to be controversial uh, or uninvestable. Kevin, has defence industry noticed any changes? There are some obvious changes and some of them are positive. So, for example, some of our larger members who are listed companies will have seen their share prices grow as a result of bigger order books, um, the rise in defence budgets around the globe and things like that. So it's not a case that uh, the defence industry uh, is suffering necessarily directly from these limits on the access to wider capital pools. Um, however, um, they do find that um, some of the conversations around uh, the focus that uh, investors have on ESG matters outweigh investment fundamentals, for example. Um, so CEOs having conversations with investors at a quarterly uh, reporting round, you know, uh, prior to Ukraine would find that top two or three questions would be around ESG matters. Mm. That's probably slipped down the list in terms of priority orders. But that hasn't translated necessarily in terms of the trends that Camilla has been talking about into a reversal of the growth in uh, um, ESG-wrapped funds. And we should be clear that the sort of Article 8 and Article 9 sort of labels, those are EU taxonomy uh, labels uh, and, um, you know, uh, r represent official... Uh, EU policy in terms of uh, labelling things like defence as bad investment if they were enacted. So it's that type of thing that we think just the perhaps thoughtless or careless application of some of these labels is not helpful in this discussion. Let's put the investment side of things uh, away for a bit and let's center the conversation on why ESG matters to the defense sector. What are the key reasons? Why is it important to the sector? Well, firstly, I mean, it is important because uh, all of our members want to be good corporate citizens and therefore they want to do the things that are required of good companies in any investment. So paying attention to ESG factors is something that they all do and want to do uh, as part of their payback to society. Um, however, um, what we should be clear about is that this is an increasingly dangerous world. You know, the peace dividend, if it ever existed, you know, is gone. We have war in Europe, we have war in the Middle East, uh, and we have potential conflict in uh, Asia-Pacific as well. So there is this very complex threat environment that now extends to other domains like space and cyber, where countries like ourselves are under increasing attack. So having a strong, resilient uh, military and a defense industry that supports the military is desperately important. So. Uh, paying attention to these broader trends that may have unintended consequences is is important for us. The Defence Command paper refresh outlined that there is nothing contradictory between the principles within ESG and the defence industry. The Green Finance Strategy published this spring highlighted that continued private investment in the UK defence industry and its NATO allies is essential to protect the UK national interests, the UK economy and our broader environmental and social goals. 
I think the latter point is really important to highlight and it actually probably tends to be often a bit forgotten. Um, I guess the defense sector also significantly contributes to innovation and new inventions that are actually necessary, for example, fighting climate change. Do we um, really properly convey this message that there are these important links and that we perhaps need to reconsider that group thinking or that blanket thinking about the defense sector and investment in DSG? I mean, look, Innovation is the lifeblood of any industry, and the same is true of defence. What is uh, remarkable is how defence has, over many decades, contributed towards society because it's a forcing function where um, the accelerated demands for science R&D being applied in defence and technology fields is then applicable in a halo effect on a much wider aspect of society and there's some amazing stats on how uh, DARPA for example over in the US has contributed enormously to uh, society so it's quite clear that defence should be a uh, hub for innovation and very often is and particularly here in the UK where uh, creative engineering is one of our national USPs if you like in the advanced engineering and manufacturing world so um, desperately important that we do not constrain that ability to be creative and particularly post Brexit where our access to some of the biggest markets that we used to have are limited. So our ability to showcase our defence capability on a global stage desperately important, which is why we're pushing very hard on this particular subject to make sure it doesn't harm mm. us in unintended ways. Camilla, following on from this, how can defence sector become more attractive to investors? So that's a very loaded question, given uh, I think the tasks ahead. But I think mostly it's actually a we have to really kind of boil it back down to basic business principles and focus are very much on the assets and capabilities that are required. And as Kevin very clearly outlined, you know, we have a huge necessity and a growing need for the defence industry and its capabilities, in particular the strengths uh, of, of, of the market that the UK offers. And I don't think those goals and aspirations have changed. But clearly with the need to actually decarbonize and the pressures around the sustainable flow of capital and in addition to that, the pressures on businesses to report against um, sort of uh, carbon tar uh, um, GHG emissions targets, it is about the roadmap and how do we get there and certainly what happens in the next 10 years. So I would echo the fact that we've got, you know, sort of a supremacy of innovation and technology in this country and we need to really lean into that and I think it's not only about and the, the sort of application of technology but it's also about the usage of how do we try to simulate what some of those proformers and some of those testing scenarios look like how do we use uh, technology and AI in energy optimization um, and also how do we actually use sort of adaptive learning to basically enhance the productivity within the industry, as the same is applied to many other sort of manufacturing-based um, um, businesses. So we have, I think, in a way, not so many different challenges in this sector than we see in many other sectors that are based in this, in this country. Um, it is obviously hugely challenging, 
but we have to, I think, draw on uh, an open-mindedness to think about things differently, to be open to change. And for businesses, and, I, and, and I'm very well aware that they're also, you know, very f hard and fast sort of looking at all of these alternatives, but actually to start implementing some of those strategies. So it's not just the governance piece around uh, energy and, 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 and the sort of uh, compliance for ESG at, say, sort of board and C-suite level. But in addition to that, it's about basically finding all of the data and then aligning that to the business, but also aligning it to the strategy of the company. And in many situations, not specifically in this sector, but I think they're very isolated, but we've actually got where sort of different language still being used and a different interpretation um, of ESG and what sustainability means in a complex industry. And so with time and with education and I think with um, more activity, we will see the convergence of the ESG strategy and the sustainability strategy. And then we should start to see sort of, you know, better results as a, you know, um, coming from that. And I think, you know, with the, the proofs in the pudding and we will actually sort of from that, hopefully see an encouragement of investment and confidence come back in um, from the sort of larger institutional markets to put uh, to put uh, to put money to work. So from the investor's point of view, what are the exact requirements and expectations facing companies when it comes to complying with those ESG filters? I think it, you, you get a different answer by speaking to different portfolio managers and obviously a spokesman for their businesses. You know, at the very sort of heart of everything they're trying to do, it is to be impactful, it is to be purpose-led and it is obviously to be, you know, doing good for the wider society. Um, you know, they're very quick, I think, to also follow that with they have a responsibility to obviously, you know, produce returns for their clients. And, you know, that has a growing need as well um, for sort of obvious reasons. Um, but in addition, they're needing, I think, more data, more input, more help and more clarity and transparency from the businesses. And I know that some companies and industries struggle a bit with either commercial sense, commercial uh, sensitivities or otherwise actually from, I think, feeling out of their comfort zone, putting things into the public domain that they haven't necessarily been used to doing in the past because either they feel that they might need to change course or they don't know the exact costs and everyone is looking for certainty today. But in a way, the pendulum needs to come back somewhere to the middle of that where we actually see businesses, I think, potentially being able and encouraged to actually talk more openly about the route that they may be going down with regards to sort of changing some of the alternative um, either sort of supplies or energy sources that they're thinking about using. But hopefully that's coupled as well with, um, you know, increase in sort of, you know, battery storage and other things. And I think we'll see hopefully a sort of a, a, a you know, sort of two lanes of information coming at the same time and the market feeling more confident around this. Kevin, how is the defence sector adjusting to these requirements and expectations? So, I mean, firstly, it's a great question. And the one of the challenges is that it's not always clear what those expectations are. So, mm -hmm. for example, we could stray into the subject of data rating agencies, where there are probably four or five different frameworks that are used by different rating agencies that on, don't have very clear foundation and methodologies that can be applied in terms of reporting against those requirements. So um, 
having said that, uh, in terms of defence as a sector, recognising that there are some inherent difficulties in terms of big grey things with huge diesel engines uh, driving around the seas of the world, um, I think defence has come to the conclusion that being good um, citizens in the world and uh, their clients, i.e. in our case the MOD but other governments as well, also desiring uh, areas of their national spend being spent wisely in ways that also benefit society beyond the national security considerations. So the imperative is there to change and I think that our defence companies here in the UK are changing and changing very rapidly in terms of uh, that which they're doing and we see a huge amount of work being done to become better corporate citizens and report in ways that are transparent and clear to everyone. So I think um, we are responding uh, and responding well in terms of um, meeting those uh, expectations and requirements externally. It would be great if there was perhaps more clarity and uh, uh, a narrowing of the set of standards against which we should be measured. but. Um, our sector wants to be part of uh, this movement. Kevin, ADS is a convener of industry, but I, w I would assume that, well, the industry is not the only key stakeholder that needs to be involved in making sure that the change happens. And we probably need a wider effort here uh, and to get the industry and government to discuss access to investment for industries critical to our national security could be one of the ways of doing it. Camilla, your thoughts on this? So... I mean, clearly, all stakeholders around a business, especially an industry coming from an industry which is, you know, as we said, a part of the sort of, you know, cr criticality of our future, you know, that, that all stakeholders need to play their part. And that, in, in, you know, requires, you know, customers um, and those part of the procurement, as in the sort of current government, you know, is and very supportive of, to be, you know, to be a good customer. Uh, to also be transparent and to be very supportive, um, not just kind of um, notionally supportive, but I think being sort of as helpful as possible to sort of clearly outline what the intentions are for basically sort of shoring up, um, you know, projects, investments um, and, um, and, uh, and, and mandates. So the more certainty in a very uncertain world we can put around some of these very challenging and complex situations obviously that is the better for encouraging investment to be um to be put to work and and to attract to the right source so um it's you know it's 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 sort of you know it is the responsibility of both business and government and the financial sector basically to deliver a transition uh, each have very different responsibilities within that sort of ecosystem um, but, 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 but in a way, looking to the levers which each can actually influence um, will be the way forward to, to making progress. Is there a role that the wider society or the media can play in this as well? Are there, for example, any misconceptions, any narratives that need to be addressed in the first place, Kevin? 
Yeah, look, I think um, the perception of defence in society has changed over many years and decades. And we in the UK, for example, have a different view of it than in the US. I mean, we've all been there and heard uh, our American colleagues saying thank you for your service to someone wearing a uniform. That mm -hmm. doesn't happen in the UK. In actual fact, the advice to our servicemen and women is to take the uniform off before they go out uh, from the base. And um, so that societal perception of defence is something that I do think um, is an area where work needs to be done. And I do think actually the government has a part to play in that uh, because they must make the case for the critical nature of both uh, our armed forces and the defence industry that support them um, must be made and made strongly. And it's been great to see uh, some of our politicians talking about that in recent months and years. Um, I think it's important the way we talk about these issues. Uh, it's uh, a complex issue and uh, managing um, the language around it is very, very important. But um, government uh, has, uh, we talked about some of the levers available. Mm -hmm. Government has legislation, has regulation. Uh, and can also convene uh, disparate sectors like finance, investment, defence and other sectors together in order to find ways to mitigate some of these unintended consequences. Camilla? So I think, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of the exclusions are based, I think, on the sort of controversial weapons, the dealing of, you know, of, of waste and hazard materials. And I think that's a very specialist area so whether it actually be sort of um the unraveling of some of the misperceptions around you know what is deemed to be you know harmful and difficult and what is deemed to be you know mostly good um that is where certainly media can help and is probably sometimes unhelpful in the way that it basically faces the subject at present I think that in this country it is an emotive subject. Um, we're seeing a lot of that in, in the press and in the sort of politics of today. Um, but, you know, underlying all of that basically is the sort of evidential need to supply security and defence. And there's a lot of information that is out there surrounding these businesses and, the, and, and sometimes the good in what is being done does get sort of lost. Um, and, you know, media is certainly one way that that can sort of, you know, the, the, the media reporting on that and sort of better clarity around it can certainly can certainly help. Um, I mean, I think going back to where we started, which is the sort of limited official sort of statistics around the investment into the sector really demonstrates actually what a specialised area it has become. Um, but actually to broaden it out, it, there does need to be some demystifying around some of these terminologies and exactly what businesses are doing and that what sometimes can be labelled um, and understood to be harmful can actually be, you know, very scientific, but very much um, masking the fact of, you know, the good that uh, a lot of these products and a lot of these services that are being provided, you know, can do. Mm. If I may add, I mean, if we take the, we talked about exclusions, one of the uh, exclusions around the use of the word nuclear uh, mm -hmm. and the 
connotation is around nuclear warheads, but actually the exclusions are much broader around uh, anything nuclear, nuclear propulsion, mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. But the companies involved in the nuclear propulsion for our um, nuclear deterrent, uh, for example, are also involved in building modular reactors, um, which will provide green energy in local places that could transform our society. And actually, back to the innovation point, it's that um, forcing function of the capability driven from a military need that is creating the science and engineering that will deliver peaceful outcomes. And so it's too easy for us to wrap together these convenient labels and say they are bad things. They are not inherently bad. People are bad, things and capabilities are not. Before we move to the end of this conversation, I would like to ask a very simple question and I would like to get an answer from both of you. Is there anything contradictory between the principles within ESG and the defence industry? Well, there shouldn't be, because ESG in its sort of uh, true definition should be to make investment safer in a way. And so if you subscribe to the principle that ESG was born out of effectively a reaction to the financial crash, and that better transparency and disclosure was actually good for the investment community. Um, in a way, all the actors around this, both the companies and the investors, actually should welcome the opportunity to actually better disclose um, how they operate um, and, and what their impact is on broader society. Um, and investors obviously are sort of calling for that. So. In a way that there shouldn't be, but as we kind of go through this still fairly sort of um, sort of early stage process, I think for a lot of us it does feel, you know, still very kind of, um, you know, it, it still very, it feels very nascent. Um, there is a lot of teething issues, and I think that makes it feel sort of contradictory and a little and, and a little controversial. Um, but in a way, ultimately, we're all kind of ending up at the same, we're wanting to end up in the same place, which is basically with, you know, responsible investment, less exposure to controversy, um, a stampening out of, you know, um, you know, an upholding of human rights, um, you know, better transparency around supply chains, um, you know, modern slavery. I mean, none of these things are new, but basically putting a lens on it is basically making you know um, companies think more broadly in respect of what isn't in their direct control and that has only got to be a good thing i think the journey of getting there especially the early stages of that you know are obviously a bit controversial so i agree there shouldn't be but there are i mean a world where we have um, more exclusions of defense than tobacco for example in terms of uk mm -hmm. investment stats is not a good thing in my opinion. So um, absolutely, as I said at the beginning, I think ESG is a force for good and the uh, transparency, the disclosures, the measurements, all of those are things which good companies should be doing. And we have a large number of very good companies who are doing those things. Could they do more? Yes. Will they do more? Yes. And we would absolutely encourage them. What we don't want to do is end up in a world where um, good companies are suffering as a result of 
unintended consequences or careless labelling or misapplied uh, investment theses. It's always difficult to predict the future, but let's try to think which direction the process might take. Will we see better investment environment and defense industry uh, benefiting from it or will we see um, a negative trend in the upcoming years? Um, well, I, I, I'm an eternal optimist, so I think it's only going to improve because I think with the um, uh, adoption of better technology, both within the businesses and also mostly actually around that kind of data acquisition and also the understanding of what that data has, which has a real value in itself, that is going to promote the benefits of ESG and is going to open up the doors, I think, to realizing that some of this sort of generalization and homogenous use of ESG language and ESG ratings and scorings really actually hasn't served well the needs of very specialized industries. So what does feel like a movement around some certain sectors and the need for them to have support in terms of you know specific um, analysis for, for for understanding their ESG um, strategies, I think that will lead to better outcomes, because I think there's a desire from all stakeholders to want better outcomes. I think investors um, see the opportunity but are nervous. Um, but if we can actually have a combination of better data, better disclosure, more use of technology and leaning into all things basically that the UK is very good at, um, then I would hope and I do believe that in the next few years we will see that sort of uh, have positive, you know, have a positive outcome. I mean, you know, it's never linear, so we're not, we might see a bit more of a bumpy ride and that's where, you know, human uh, reaction behaviour, um, you know, comes into play there. Um, but you see that in the, in, in the market. Um, I mean, Clearly what is also holding back just generally sort of the green transition and there's a lot of rhetoric around this at the moment is obviously the sort of stable, the, the, you know, is the global economy stable enough in its growth path? You know, what is the general cost of funding and the kind of complexities of actually affording the capex around the need to transition? Um, but I think when we look back, we will actually see a definitely an upward, tra upward trajectory you know, maybe with a few sort of um, bounce, bounces along the way. Kevin, will it become easier for defence industry to secure investment? I think it will improve. I agree with Camilla that it will do so. I think that it, this debate is an important part of that. Um, some awareness, some education around the unintended consequences of some of these things. Um, I believe that we still have work to do for our smaller organisations and SMEs where I think uh, their access to retail financial services uh, is challenged uh, because of perhaps the misapplication of some of these uh, themes and ideas. Kevin and Camilla, thank you very much for your time and a fascinating and detailed discussion about whether defence is aligned with ESG objectives and how we can make sure the sector does not lose out on the investment that is crucial for securing the UK's security and innovation advantage. And thank you very much to our listeners for joining us today. If you would like to submit a question for our next episode, please email them to defencetalks at geostrategy.org.uk. And to find out more about our podcast and upcoming episodes, please visit www.geostrategy.org.uk or send an email to defencetalks at geostrategy.org.uk. Until next time. Thank you.